So welcome again to this professional practice podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. And today we're joined by Tom Cronin, who's a practice manager at ADP, an AJ100 practice with offices all over the UK, as well as in Cyprus and India. He deals with a range of issues from financial project and human resource management to appointments, contracts, and quality systems, amongst um, many other things. So sadly, we can't deal with all of those, but I hope we can touch on several. Specifically uh, today, the initial stages of setting up a practice, what are the key things to think about? Uh, And how to address employment law from the position of the employee, as well as from the employer's perspective. So thanks very much indeed, Tom, for joining us. Uh, Always have this opening question about yourself. So part in history, if you can, about how you got to where you are now. Hi, Austin. It's lovely to be here. Um, I've been doing this job for almost 20 years now, uh, and I did sort of fall into it. I've always had an interest in architecture, but probably more its history and the sort of built environment and how it impacts our lives rather than... I've never really been interested in the nitty-gritty of making a building stay up in the air, to be honest. Um, If I was to get involved in architecture, I'd probably be uh, all about the aesthetics and the first stages. I've been teaching... English overseas just after the millennium and I came back to London looking for something to do and um, Tim Foster Architects in Islington was looking for a practice manager. I've got family background in theatre and they specialise in theatres so I went for it and somehow blagged the job. Um, I think there were about 12 staff at the time. Um, Since then I've worked in a pretty wide range of London practices up to about 140 staff. Uh, after Tim Foster Architects, I worked at Cottrell and Bimulan Architecture. They're a really good practice that focuses on educational buildings and community projects, among other things. And then on to John Robertson Architects, who mostly undertake large sort of commercial projects. And I'm currently at ADP Architecture, who work on a, lots of public and private sector buildings, education, healthcare, resi, commercial. Um, and I've also been lucky enough to work in a wide range of different business cultures. Um, An ADP isn't a slightly new one for me. It's an employee-owned trust. So I've been really enjoying getting to know how that works and the implications for the business. It's probably worth saying that I've been at large-ish practices for the last 10 years. So I suspect I now come from a mindset of working at scale and with larger projects and clients. But I think the principles are basically the same for any architecture practice. Oh, well, that's interesting, isn't it? I didn't expect all of that. And I, I just I just marked down from looking at uh, your CV somewhere, I found it, about the fact you have an interest in architectural photography. And just as an aside, we did a special professional practice podcast with uh, Martella Spadaro of Naro uh, a, a few years ago. Um, so what is it about photography that interests you? And it's, it's a hobby, um, but... Because of the practice I've worked at, I've been extremely lucky to have the opportunity to photograph some very nice projects. And I'm also very lucky to have had them published in some magazines and things because of that. I did think about making it a full-time job at one point. Um, I thought quite hard about that. But I also realised I'm just not suited to a freelancer lifestyle, I think is the the key to that. Um, I I suspect making a a job out of a hobby would not be as fun as I, I imagine. So the um, second question is really, um, you're, you're the practice director. I'm just wondering what the practice director means. What is a practice director? In the previous job in uh, JRA, you were operations director. I just wonder whether these phrases are interchangeable. And actually, since your opening pronouncements were the fact that you came from this kind of wide and varied background, is this a kind of transferable skill set that you have, or is it a dedicated uh, profession that you're, you're involved in? Well, I think I think it is a... a- I think there are lots of transferable skills and that's one of the things 
I enjoy about the job. You know, there's enormous amount of variation in the things you get involved with and the types of knowledge you have to acquire. And and it's it's both a people job and it's a technical job. And I, I do particularly enjoy the, the aspects of it that are specific to architecture. But, you know, it, it, one of the pleasures of it is knowing that there are lots of transferable skills that I can I could take to, to a completely different career, I suspect, if I wanted to. I mean, the reason for a practice manager, a practice director, you know, once a practice gets to a certain size, it does make sense for architects to hand over some of the admin to someone else. You know, they should be concentrating on fee-earning work and they've got a, a long and expensive education to back that up. The level of support you can afford you know, just grows with the size of the practice and smaller practices might have a, a single practice manager or an administrator. As you grow, you start to add specialists like an HR manager, um, a marketing person or someone, you know, to look after the facilities. And eventually, you know, the practice manager might be overseeing a team of business support staff, um, which is sort of the position I've been in in the last 10 years. Uh, and again, the size of that support team will vary. It could make up probably about 10% of your workforce if you're a big practice. And alongside that, you know, as I say, one of the things I enjoy about the role is, is the sort of side aspects, not simply managing other people, but I, I take responsibility for other aspects of practice management like PI, um, legals and appointments. And I've been QA manager as well as getting involved in fee proposals and resourcing and overseeing the, you know, on top of managing the support team. So it, it's a very wide remit. So um, very, there's no there's no average day-to-day activity for you then. No, no, that's that's kind of what I like about it. It's also one of the challenges sometimes. And, and your question about you know different titles, I think the the titles are all covering basically the same thing. They probably just differentiated levels of experience and responsibility. I think you know uh, I, I could probably just as well be defined as a practice manager, but there's such a variety of you know a practice manager in a practice of 10 people is a probably a very different beast to in a practice of 140. With, with specific relationship to practice management, there is that phrase, cash is king. And if you are starting up a business, it's very important that you understand cash flow and kind of manage, manage your finances. So um, why is cash flow so important? Do you want to just give us a few clues? Well, I mean, fundamentally, you've got to have the money in, in the bank um, to pay your staff. And it's worth uh, as well as all your other bills but you know you've really got to think very carefully when you're starting your practice there's a hell of a lot of responsibility that goes along with suddenly having responsibility for people's families mortgages lives livelihoods and you've got to make sure you've got the money in the bank at the end of the month to pay them this is you know a hard and fast responsibility and the key to that and it's a complex issue in architecture because of the way that projects operate it's about managing your your invoicing and managing your fee debts. And it's a, the struggle is when projects are so, projects can stop and start at a moment's notice and our appointments don't give us a lot of notice and don't give us a lot of support when a client suddenly decides that actually overnight they want to put the projects on hold for three months. We all know that the programmes for projects can change all the time and therefore suddenly you're not able to invoice what you thought you were going to invoice at the end of this month and you've got a hole in your in your cash flow and so it's a, it's a very complicated process but keeping on top of your debtors making sure you are chasing them uh, making sure you sort of in a constant dialogue where a, an invoice is beyond the 30 days or whatever you've agreed on terms to make sure you understand when it's going to be paid is critical and invoicing in line with your your invoicing schedule don't you know don't leave it an extra week because you know you're too busy doing something else that's that's money that's got to be in the bank to pay your bills very few practices have large 
cash reserves until you get very big indeed. It's critical that that money in the bank is in the bank at the month end. And to be honest, when you're a small practice, you're probably going to have to have a very good relationship with your bank manager because you're going to need an overdraft usually. Yeah. So that idea about uh, don't put off tomorrow what you can invoice today is kind of good advice. I used to work for a small practice, not my finest uh, moment, but uh, he always used to say, never pay until the court order. Uh, that, that was his way of uh, paying his debts. And there's a lot of people like that around and you have to be able to cater for that by keeping on paying your staff while waiting for a slightly more unscrupulous people to pay you. Um, yes. In terms of um, overheads and all the rest of it, um, the, there are these kind of little niggly things that people also don't necessarily take account of sometimes when they're starting up, like national insurance, uh, sorry, uh, NI employers' contributions, national insurance employers' contributions. So do you want to just say what it is, what kind of likely rates are? Yeah, I mean, there's, there is a lot to think about in terms of those, as you say, those things you don't don't immediately spring to mind when you're thinking about setting up your practice. You probably, in your head, you've got the idea of this salary that you're going to pay. You've looked on the salary benchmarking. You think, okay, this I'm going to need to get a part two, and it's this this amount. But yeah, there are all sorts of things hiding in the background that are going to add to your costs. And national insurance is certainly one of them. You know, you've you've immediately added thirteen point eight percent to that salary you were thinking of. Um, when you put on your national insurance contributions, your employer's national insurance contribution. And also you need to think about who's going to manage your payroll and tax. Is that you? That's going to take a big chunk out of your fee earning time, probably. You're probably not, when you start out, going to be able to afford an administrator. Um, So you need to think about that. There are sort of, are you going to offer any benefits above and beyond statutory because these are going to add to your costs per employee and potentially eat into your employee's productive time as well and so will all of that sort of non-fee earning time uh, which is used up with admin and travel and bids and speculative work and that needs to be built into your your business model you know pricing for those non-product that non-productive time is so important when you're putting together your business plan um, understanding your costs and then you've got inflation if you're increasing salaries each year in line with inflation uh, you'll need to budget for it. Are your fees going to go up at the same rate as inflation? Highly doubtful. Have you incre- have you sort of accounted for increased costs in a multi-year fee bid? You know, inflation will kill your profit over three or four-year projects. And yeah, you need to bear that in mind and add that to your employee costs in a, in a fee bid, for instance. And then the other thing which is on our mind at the moment, because we're busy recruiting since Brexit, we're all, we can't avoid becoming, having to become familiar with the visa process, um, becoming a, a, an accredited sponsor um, and right, getting through that process. Because, you know, anyone outside the UK is probably going to need a visa in the future. And it's time consuming and costly uh, above and beyond your other sort of recruitment costs. I mean, there's a whole, I suspect there's a whole other podcast to be done on the, uh, the additional costs associated with, um, with starting a business. But then the final, final one, which you, you know, you cannot avoid thinking about is there's lots of obligations to maintain a sort of safe and insured working environment. Um, you know, the place where you set up your staff has to be compliant with lots of laws and regulations, and you need a trained and competent team. It, it all brings further costs. It's a it's a big topic. 
Yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> it is a big topic, and uh, that's, that's a good start. As you say, we can go into depth in, in, in maybe other programs in the future, but I think these are really important uh, reminders. In, in as much as there's also pensions, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are various levels, but there's also a minimum that the employer has to pay. Um, and in, in fact, employers uh, can be fined by the pension regulators if they don't pay uh, the employee's contribution. So, uh, what, what kind of, again, what kind of percentages uh, are we generally talking about here? Yeah, so there's it, been a lot of changes in that area um, in terms of employee responsibilities in the last 10 years or so, um, and it's still changing. And we need to, if you're thinking about it, you need to get online and really check the current situation. But you must offer employees a pension, and that's separate to the kind of the national uh, pension that's paid out of your national insurance. You have an obligation to pay a minimum of 3% of salary into it um, on behalf of the member of staff, and they have to match that. It's an extra cost to consider. Employees aren't obliged to take up the pension that you set up, but employers are obliged to set it up in the first place. Uh, employees need to then formally ask to leave it. In my experience, most don't. So, you know, you really do need to allow for that extra 3%, as well as your 3% contribution. So, you know, it's going to be um, 6% or so uh, overall. And yeah, that'll add up. Yeah, and what about like part-time staff or short-term contracts? Are we still dealing with the same kind of requirements here or what? Well, I mean, lots of people these days are looking for part-time working. So there's plenty of people out there and it's quite a useful source of staff because there are plenty of people coming back into the job market after having children or something like that who really want a part-time role or want a role with sort of restricted hours. So there are plenty of takers. Your responsibilities as an employer are the same as for a full-time employee. And short-term and fixed-term contracts can be really helpful when you're starting out because you need that flexibility um, to control your sort of risk and exposure. With a fixed-term contract, you kind of understand exactly what your costs are for the next six months or whatever it might be. But the flexibility does work both ways. Employees on these sort of contracts are not always going to feel as engaged and secure as a full-time staff member. And you might not generate the sort of practice culture and organisational knowledge to the same extent as you would with your sort of full-time staff you've made a commitment to. You know, it's more likely that a fixed-term member of staff will leave if a better offer comes along, potentially. Uh, I also wanted to say something about um, freelance staff. They are another option which is quite attractive when you're um, starting out because you think, okay, no strings attached. Um, I've got no sort of real responsibilities for them, responsibilities on on the freelancer, but it's, it's not really the case anymore. It used to be a lot of practices did used to use freelancers all the time, but P, um, HMRC have really cracked down on that. You can't get away with just employing freelancers on a long-term basis. If they're working for you 100% of the time, you pretty much need to put them on your PAYE system um, after about a month or so. Otherwise, it was, they'll start to sort of look a bit askance at you. And you do need to treat them as permanent employees after, you know, and put them on the PAYE. This is like the IR35 regulations, yeah. Mm, they've been looking into this for quite a long time to avoid people doing it. Yeah. And the other thing that people often don't think about when they're taking on freelancers and agency staff it's really important to sign them up to a suitable contract that protects you and ensures they're they're working under the terms that support the requirements of the appointments you signed up to. So don't rely on the the document they've signed up to with an agency or, you know, if they've provided a, a contract, it really needs to protect 
your requirements that you've signed up to in terms of confidentiality and uh, intellectual property and things like that. So it's worth having a, a think about that if you're thinking about freelancers. All right, very good. And just um, in terms of where you are now, ADP, uh, are there any like any extras beyond all of that stuff, like fringe benefits? I mentioned gym membership, uh, but maybe that's a very old fashioned uh, example, insurance, childcare, and all the rest of it. Do you, do you offer that? And actually, actually my, my subsidiary question is, is, why is it that that's better than a pay rise? I never understood that as an employee. I mean, I never been, I haven't been to the gym in my life, uh, as you can <laughs> probably tell. But uh, yes, yeah, so what's, what's all that about? Well, um, yeah, I, I actually, gym membership is still a very a, quite a common um, a common benefit that places uh, offer. At ADP, we don't offer that one in particular, but I think we do have a very good um, benefit package at the moment. We've been reviewing it in the last six months. One of the things about being an employee-owned trust is that the sort of bonus process is built in, which is is great. We're quite unusual, and we have a sort of compressed working hours system where you work a nine-day fortnight and have a day off, um, very slightly longer, sort of nine to six daily hours, and then you get um, a day off a fortnight, which is great. We've got a really good financial support package for part threes, which I think the feedback from the recruitment process is that's a very attractive option for part two is looking to do that. We don't have a full private healthcare system. We have a kind of healthcare cashback, and um, we have critical illness insurance and life insurance for our staff. We have enhanced sick pay and maternity pay, um, we have paid off time, paid time off for volunteering, uh, we pay professional memberships, we have all the standard salary sacrifice schemes, um, including we're just trialling one for electric cars, which I think is going to be quite an interesting offer, and studio wellbeing budgets, things like that. So I think we're probably a bit above average, and we uh, and we did do a sort of benchmarking exercise before we reviewed our benefits recently. The one thing I would say, in particular in relation to private healthcare and, funnily enough, gym membership, the thing that can trip you up when you're looking at um, benefits is tax implications. So things there are particular things, private healthcare is one of them, gym memberships are another, which are seen as benefits in kind, and they have a whole separate tax process under P11D, which means that both you and the employer are going to pay a bit more tax for giving that benefit, and there will be costs involved in that, so you need to think about which benefits you can give that aren't going to involve additional costs, and think about that when you're thinking about what you can offer. I think your point about the why, why would you want have these benefits you know why are they attractive i think the point is that they are well certainly in our case they're across the board everyone gets them salary increases tend to be discretionary you tend to get you know different amounts for different people with this with these sort of benefit packages everyone gets them certainly adp everyone gets exactly the same um, and i think that's a kind of attractive democratic way of, of offering something a bit above and beyond yeah, obviously, I'd look at it the other way around. That there's there's nothing more discriminatory than offering a gym membership when when it comes my way. <laughs> Everyone else is getting it, uh, getting fit and slim, and and I'm down the chip shop. But um, yeah, it's funny because when the, when the health and safety legislation first came in in the 1990s, there was this kind of big policy that instead of getting a pay rise, everybody would get a comfortable chair for back strain. And I thought this is not what I was no. I thought I was going to get, you know. No, but, um, I don't think we'd be putting that in the adverts for our recruitment process. <laughs> well, you did a very good uh, advertising job there, I have to say. You, you well, that's that's what I'm here for. Precisely, that's, <laughs> never miss an opportunity. Look uh, back to the back to the miserable reality of today, which is the fact that it's March 2022. We're having this conversation, and the world's going mad. 
again. So we, you mentioned inflation uh, earlier on. I just wonder, just as a general aside, as to how you, uh, you know, expect on long-term contracts that you may be involved in with, with clients, but also your staff, how do you deal with that? Probably six months ago, inflation was non-existent and now it's up to 8%. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's suddenly become a very significant issue. And I think you know, we have lived for quite a long time with relatively low inflation and it hasn't been a huge issue, but you know, it, it's going to have a big impact on our fees now, um, particularly on larger projects and particularly on multi-year programmes. The value of your fees is going to decrease significantly um, and your costs are going to go up. You do need to make sure you build inflation into your sort of multi-year lump sum fee bid to ensure that, you know, just to make sure your fee income keeps pace with increasing costs for the business. It's a very difficult thing to do because if you do it seriously and you really do kind of believe that inflation is going to stay high for the next few years, you've got every chance of making a bid uncompetitive. It's a real balancing act. As I said, you know, in the last few years with inflation at whatever it's been, 2%, you might be able to accommodate it just about in a two or three year project where, you know, you could just about absorb it. It's going to hit into your profit, but not actually make it a loss making job. I think increasingly it's, it's going to, you know, it has the potential to take all of your profit and probably turn a profit making job into a loss making job over the course of a few years. So yeah, you need to be very Careful. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I said it was a grim topic, so let's uh, let's move on slightly. Uh, well, I don't want to ruin the mood, but uh, issue of insurances, particularly, we've talked about employers' responsibilities, but there's an obligation to carry PII, uh, public indemnity insurance. So can you just explain to the listeners what that is? And also, especially in the light of what's gone on, I'm bringing the mood down again, especially in the light of what's gone on with the Renfrew tragedy, the building safety bill, and all those implications, uh, how has it affected you? Yeah, well, this, these inflation and this are two absolute sort of key topics at the moment, which are having a very significant effect. So, and PI, professional indemnity insurance, it's there for the architect, it's there for us to protect ourselves against potential claims that come in. Architects don't, as I said earlier, architects don't have a lot of cash in the bank. You know, if, if you don't have insurance, there's very little someone can come after you for. Um, you probably... You might probably don't own the building you're in. You might have some chairs, some tables, some desks, some computers. That's not going to add up to, you know, the two or three million quid that the claim might be for. So it's to protect you and your business. It's also to some extent to protect the clients, which is why the clients will insist on certain levels of PI being maintained as part of your appointment. There are a complex combination of things going on with insurance at the moment. Um, much as I'd love to blame greedy insurance firms, I think the fact is that the fact that so many insurers have pulled out of the market in the last few years shows how unprofitable it is as a sector. Um, and you know, my understanding is that it's been pretty unprofitable for some time and that Grenfell was a, a tipping point, essentially. It's also it's a problem that we are obliged to carry insurance, but that provision of that insurance is totally market-driven. We're getting towards a place where there is very limited competition for our premiums and our business. And it's going to put all of the control in the hands of the insurers. Um, you know, both the cost of the insurance premiums are shooting up, but also the type of work we can carry out. You know, if we can't get insurance for t- certain types of building, wooden buildings, for instance, buildings using CLT and, and wooden facades and cladding systems, you know, 
can we do them? It's, it's, a, it's a question. I think it's also the really big question, which is probably for another time, um, are those limitations that are being forced on us by insurers going to impact our ability to you know, reduce our carbon footprint in the construction industry? Because there's such fear about wooden structures uh, and the risks that the insurers see in them, even though that may not actually be the case. Are we going to be able to build these structures at the number, in the numbers and types that we need to really you know, have a, a sustainability impact? On the other side of things, I think architects do need to do much better improving to insurance that they are minimising their risks and have suitable quality assurance systems in place. And underwriters need to do much better to engage with architects to understand our business and the sector. Um, I think it would benefit from doing that in the long run. But I'm always amazed how little information uh, insurer PI proposal documents ask for i look at them and i think you can't you know you can't possibly know anything relevant about how we work and what sort of risks we are from this document i think the key in the future for architects is going to be building relationships with underwriters not just the brokers um, you need to get in there and see them if you can and support your proposal form with clear examples of your best practice and your risk reduction processes show that you as an architect understand where the risks are and what you've done to minimize them um, because unfortunately the insurers are, have the, the upper hand at the moment and we're desperate for cover and we're desperate for lower premiums they've got no incentive to do to do either of those things so i think we yeah as i say building that relationship with the insurers is going to be really key in the next few years yeah, it's also a conversation which downplays the risk element. I mean, in some of these buildings which are uninsurable or some of these materials which are not being possible to use anymore, wooden balconies, for goodness sake, you know, there's an overstatement of the risk which really needs to be downplayed. So it's almost that it's, getting, it's running away with itself and there needs to be a commonsensical uh, intervention in this, in this uh, discussion, I think. Otherwise, as you say, ironically, everything will be built out of concrete. Um, yeah, and yeah. I think it's, it is about us educating the underwriters as much as anything. I think they are a bit more willing to come and understand because they want to understand the risks better as well. But I think we need a, a meeting of minds over things, particularly like CLT and, and wooden uh, construction. Yeah, yeah. God, we've, this is a downer now, isn't it? That's, uh, it's, it's You're looking, all, looking for a more positive question. I'm not sure there are any. There, are, there aren't any. Let's see where we go. Yeah, look, so in terms of branch management discussions, um, it is that issue that there's two sides to this conversation. One is the needs and the desires of employees, and one is the responsibility of the employer. And sometimes they go hand in hand in this kind of perfect uh, symbiosis, and other times they are conflictual. So, for example, before 24 months, Employment rights don't really have effect in the same way they do after 24 months. So you could have less scrupulous or maybe more shrewd employers. You might try to get rid of people before that two years uh, kicks in. So whatever the motivations, there's kind of disciplinary and dismissal processes are kind of quite difficult to, to manage. I just wonder if you want to take that ball and run with it, just explain what issues you find in your work experience. I, I think that two-year cutoff date is... A bit arbitrary. I mean, I haven't personally come across employers that would really be so cynical as to say, okay, you're coming up to um, 24 months, off you go. Um, I'm sure it happens. I think the key thing for, from an employer's perspective is to make sure you get that first two years right in terms of making sure that you your whole sort of onboarding, induction and probation process are clearly going to identify an employee's strengths and weaknesses in that period of probation, ideally. I'm not so much the first two years, but the probation period. 
And if you do have issues that come up in that probation period, don't be afraid to extend probation periods. You can do so pretty much indefinitely if you're not happy with the standard of, of someone's work. But it's always really important to make sure you give people the opportunity to prove themselves. You know, you need to, you know, you need to give them, have a clear understanding of what their weaknesses are and address them, give them the opportunity to address them um, and give them a clear understanding of the actual objectives and goals and potentially the consequences of not meeting those. I think it's more important to be uh, strong as employer uh, during the probation period. Make sure you don't allow people that aren't up to scratch to get through probation more than the two years. I think the two years is probably a bit of a red herring these days. So, yeah, uh, the process of dismissing members of staff and disciplinary measures is a complicated one. You can have all sorts of things written into your contract, but the key, the key point as an employer is to make sure you refer, you always refer to the ACAS um, online guidance on these things. You can't go wrong. It's a brilliant resource, and they will take you through each sort of process very clearly what you have to do. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky... A tricky area. So I didn't want to mean to put you on the spot or anything. I mean, I think the the, the ACAS document looks at it from, as I say, from both sides, doesn't it? So it really mm. is a it really is a useful handbook for you know employer and employee. There's a, there's a defensive and an offensive element to it. I mean, there's a sort of I suppose there are basic principles um, when dealing with any kind of human resources issue, and, and disciplinaries and dismissals are are the same. You know, make sure you put everything in writing uh, and communicate clearly and in detail. Don't delay processes unnecessarily. If, as an employer, don't host meetings on your own. Make sure that at least two of you, and you can both take notes or agree on a single set of notes. Assuming it's not related to gross misconduct, which is a slightly different thing, and it isn't in a probation period, and you've got to give staff, as I said earlier, the, you know, the opportunity to correct issues before you go down that dismissal route, and be very careful to make sure that no performance issues are down to a, a disability or a specific learning difference like dyslexia, because a whole other sort of area of rules apply. So it's very important that you have a sort of open and honest conversation with your employee about any areas of sort of neurodiversity or disability that they might have. You know, make sure you're very clear about what's gone wrong. Put it in writing. Put it in, put in place a program for reviewing their work in relation to the issues. Yeah, set a clear program for improvement. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. I think I think you've kind of covered the generic uh, requirements. I mean, it's, it's that difficulty between not leaving things go on too long, while at the same time making sure that you allow for enough time for responses and conversations to happen with the employee. So that's that's fair enough. I mean, ACAS document is is the uh, go to uh, documentation. Mm-hmm. Following on from that, I suppose. Presumably, one of the first things you do in your company is to hand over an employee handbook, which, of course, everyone reads cover to cover. And, and presumably, that's after they've signed the contract, or do you do it beforehand? But what, what kind of things do you have in yours? And with all of your experience over the years, uh, what do you think the most important thing, if you were to pick one, what's the most important thing of, it, of a handbook? Well, yeah, a handbook is is a useful document to have. It's it, Traditionally, it will have all of your employment policies in it. Um, but I think it's also worth making sure it's also got um, sort of your guidance documents, ways of working within the office. It's useful because it's not part of the employee contracts, but ideally your employee contract, well, 
not ideally, it should, your employee contract should refer to your employee handbook and the policies as part of your contract documents. And that also means that you can update it regularly without having to constantly go back to employees' contracts and say, oh, can you re-sign because we've changed our equal opportunities policy, whatever it might be. So it should have all of those sort of standard documents in it. Um, I Ideally, it would also have a sort of bit of a welcome guide to the practice um, that introduces some of the key people, some of the key roles within the organisation. It's a fairly standard document, but to be honest, I think more important almost than that is is creating a sort of a welcoming and effective onboarding and induction process. I think that's the most important thing, and it sets the tone for an employee's entire kind of employment journey. Um, I think it also ensures people get working effectively and efficiently in their first sort of few months of work. And at ADP, we have a process where each member of the studio takes responsibility for an aspect of an induction, uh, which is also a great way of everyone meeting each other. And, and also new employees get allocated a mentor for support. And I think a mentoring process is really important for architectural practices as well. I think um, particularly given issues with mental health and stress in architecture generally, I think that needs to be addressed. So I think obviously the employee handbook is is an important document and it has a function in terms of ensuring that you can maintain updated documentation. As I say, I'm particularly interested in how we're bringing staff in at the moment, probably because we're recruiting a lot and I'm just thinking about it. Okay, if you're listening to this uh, sometime in 2023, you've missed the opportunity, but March 2022, <laughs> get, get your CVs in. Um, I'm sure we will be recruiting then as well. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. That was a terrible thing to say, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, bigger and better, bigger and better. Very quickly, as an aside, and I'll edit this, uh, I think I said the wrong thing, so I'm going to repeat this sentence. Um, it's obligatory that you carry PII, professional indemnity insurance, professional indemnity insurance. I think I said public for some strange reason. Um, anyway, oh, look, okay. uh, that, that, that's it, Tom. That's it. Uh, oh, okay. it's, it's, uh, it's all over in a, in, a, in a blink of an eye. But it was very, very useful. Thank you very much. And hopefully for the listeners, it might have encouraged them to think about the importance of various unseen policies uh, within one's practice. Uh, and I'm sure things that could be improved upon, undoubtedly. That's all we've got time for today. You can find ADP on adp architecture.com adp-architecture.com please tune in and subscribe to the professional practice podcasts and listen to our archive on soundcloud and itunes and other providers there's a whole host of topics available in our archive my name is austin williams thanks for listening until the next time goodbye